book of Genesis. So would you find that book in your Bible this evening? According to every statistic I have ever read, the Bible is the best-selling book of all time. It has sold six billion copies, been translated into 2,300 different dialects. There are 31,000 verses or so, depending on what translation you're reading from in the Old Testament, and about 8,000, I think, in the New Testament. If you were to take your Bible out and begin to read, and, and read it at, we'll call it pulpit speed, not the way I read, Every, my wife always says I read too fast, but if you just read aloud and kind of understandable, the whole Bible would take you about 71 hours to read through. Now we're going to take a lot longer than that. We're hoping to get through 13 verses tonight, but in the weeks to come, we'll cover as much as we can and not leave anything out. When we get to the genealogies, and there are quite a few of them in the book of Genesis, I will not be graded on pronunciation. <clears throat> and on those days, we might very well fly by several chapters once we learn why they are there and what we are supposed to learn from them. Our approach on Wednesday nights going through this book will not be the three-point sermon with a central theme, as you might find on Sunday morning, but rather we'll look at the narrative and the phrases and the word pictures and the chapters that God the Holy Spirit has given to us to learn about the Lord. It was Spurgeon who said years ago, a Bible that is falling apart usually belongs to someone who is not. So I hope you're a Bible user. You know, write in your Bible, mark it up. I have to replace Bibles a lot because I write in them a lot. Um, but this is God's word to you. This is his eternal plan for your life. And the Bible sweeps through from Genesis, eternity past, through eternity future, the book of Revelation, especially the last two chapters where we find a new heaven and a new earth. <clears throat> you should know starting the Bible study this way that, that the Bible is written with a... With a um, agenda. And the agenda is very clear. It, it is interested in one person and two events. The person is Jesus Christ. The two events are his first coming to save and his second coming to rule and to reign. The Bible is divided into categories. They are I set apart like this in many ways for us to be able to, to learn about Jesus and the, the, the events. In fact, every book and every Every writing in there, every chapter, has some attachment to the revelation of Christ and the um, interest or the unveiling, if you will, of the two purposes for which the Bible is written. Um, if you want to outline the entire Bible, you can call the Old Testament the preparation. In fact, the whole Old Testament is designed with an anticipation of the coming of Jesus. After anticipate or preparation comes, manifestation. Go to the Gospels and you will meet Jesus and hear from him and read about him and why he came and what he wants us to learn. In the book of Acts, we find the propagation. It is the taking of the message of Christ to a world that needs to hear from him. The epistles are information, how you live and what we do with what God has given to us and what should our life be like as we wait for his return. And then you get to the last book and it's consummation. It's all over there. The Lord has come back, his judgments are complete, his promises are fulfilled, this earth passes away, and there's a new heaven and a new earth. 
And so it's good that you have that kind of concept in your mind as you start, and especially since we're starting with the book of beginnings. The Old Testament has the law. It is the first five books of the Bible, uh, sometimes called the Pentateuch. It is really the law of God, the, the, the conditions by which God establishes where you and I may one day approach him who is holy and we are not. Following the first five books of the Bible are the historical books of the Old Testament. They, are, uh, they start in the book of Joshua. They run all the way through the book of Esther. And the historical books cover events. And they look basically towards the past. Those books are interested in the past. After the historical books come the books of wisdom or of poetry, if you will. They run from the book of Job to the song, uh, through the Song of Solomon, I should say. They are not events-driven. They are experience-driven. And they are all written in the present tense, which means a day-to-day, right-now relationship with God. Rather than the history just looking back, this is the, uh, these are the experiences that man has with God in the present tense. And so as you read those, you will see the, the, the Hebrew poetry in which it is written, but it is written so God's people can know how, how God wants to respond and how we should respond to him. They don't further the historical record at all. They're just there to, to bring you into the, into, the, into the now, if you will, relationship with the Lord. And then, so it, it, it's past tense, then present tense, and then, of course, we have the prophetic books. Starts with the book of Isaiah, runs to the book of Malachi. It is expectation. Events, experience, expectation. These are all future tense, looking ahead to what God has to do and wants to do in our life. Interesting numbering. I don't know if you've ever looked, but the, the Pentateuch has five books. Then the historical books are, are 12. And then there is a poetic book, five. And then there are major prophets, long books, five of them, and then minor prophets, 12. So you have 5, 12, 5, 5, 12, 39 in all. The New Testament can be divided into four categories, 27 books, the history from Matthew through the end of the book of Acts, the letters of Paul, he wrote 14 of them to be exact, seven general epistles, one prophetic one. So we have a lot to learn. The Bible was written by 35 authors. Some were kings, some were shepherds, some were prophets, some were soldiers, a couple of fishermen, written over a, a lifetime, their lifetime. Some 16 centuries are uh, represented in them. But all of them together form this one masterpiece, God's word that he has given to us. All scripture is given to us, Paul said to Timothy, by inspiration of God and that it is there for our reproof and for our correction, for our instruction in righteousness, so that the man of God could be complete and thoroughly furnished unto every good work. Peter will later add, no scriptures of private interpretation, but the prophecies found in it were not written by the will of men. Instead, holy men or of God spoke as they were being moved by the Holy Spirit. So that's what you have laying on your lap. So tonight we, we start at the beginning. <laughs> ground level. The word Genesis means origin or source or beginning. It is the foundational book. I think you need to know this book well if you're going to do well in the rest of the 65 books that follow. In fact, Genesis is quoted over 200 times in the New Testament. It's the most quoted New Testament, uh, Old Testament book in the New Testament. 
The book of Genesis is foundational for our understanding because we need, we need to know where the universe came from. Where did man come from? How did marriage start? How about human government and sin and death and sacrifice and salvation? Genesis covers 2,416 years of human history from the fall of man to the death of Joseph. And it's a fairly easy book to outline. The first 11 chapters are usually labored as primeval. It is where events dominate the storyline. And then as you get to chapter 12, to the end of the book, chapter 50, there is a patriarchal focus. The interest is no longer on events, but upon people. People are in focus. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, if you will. Since we know that the Bible is written with a purpose, one person to be revealed, two events to be looked at, you will conclude easily enough as you read the book of Genesis that uh, God is not interested in giving us all the information we would like. I think as you read most of the things in the Bible, you go, gosh, I wonder what happened to that guy. I wonder how this turned out. I wonder what, what, what they were thinking. And you, you aren't told that. And the reason more than anything else is God doesn't and isn't interested in giving you a full picture of the times and the events, but he wants to draw this line very clearly from him to you. He wants you to be able to find the redemptive line and stick with it that will lead you to his son. For example... Adam and Eve lived to be about 900 years old. Had a lot of kids, but only three of them are recorded in the Bible because those serve God's purposes in that two purposes. They want to reveal his son, his first and his second coming. Moses wrote these first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, if you will. Jesus verified it time and again. You will find lots of Bible writers who say, well, we're not so sure Moses wrote the Bible, well, or this portion of the Bible. He said, well, you know, Jesus said that he did. You know, when he said to them, whatever was written in the law of, the, of Moses and the prophets concerning me, he said to those on the road to Emmaus, but he mentions that was was written in the law of Moses. In Mark chapter 8, when he cleansed that leper, uh, he was cleansed. Jesus said, just don't tell anyone. Go show yourself to the priest Offer the gift that Moses commanded you as a testimony to them. Go do what, what Moses said. And time and again, the Lord refers to these five books, including this book, as a work that Moses uh, was involved with, if you will. He, he penned them. Matthew, was it in chapter 19 when they asked about divorce? Why did Moses command a divorce to be written a certificate? And Jesus said, well, Moses, just because of the hardness of your heart, permitted it. But that wasn't God's plan from the beginning. I think it was in um, Matthew 12 when they came and asked him about, you know, this guy had a lot of wives, and when he's in heaven, whose wife will he be? And, and, and Jesus said, look, concerning the dead, haven't you read the book of Moses? So he constantly reaffirms, if, if you will, who wrote this book. So if you want to know who wrote this book, Moses wrote this. How do I know? Jesus said so. Not me. He did. Now, some guy with a fancy commentary might tell you otherwise. He's wrong. If the Bible can be believed, he's wrong. The last thing I would say to you before we get started tonight is the Bible is progressive in revelation. What that means to you and I is God has a plan, God has a purpose, God has a will, but he, he, he reveals himself progressively so that you find yourself, as you go, learning more about the Lord and, and his ways. Chapter 1 and 2, 
creation. God is the creator. He is powerful enough to create. Chapter 3 and 4, God's love and in his mercy towards those who are in a fallen condition of sin. In chapter 6, 7, and 8, and 9, the flood and God's justice and his holiness. Chapter 10 and 11, he's the, the king over every nation. Chapter 12, we learn from Abraham that he is our savior. From, from Isaac, we will learn that he's faithful to his word. From Jacob, we'll learn that he is tremendously gracious towards us. From Joseph, we'll learn that God has providence. He rules in the affairs of our lives, even when they don't always make any sense. But that's progressive. You learn as you read. And so it's important that you go through the whole thing. The, the first chapter of Genesis is one of those most God-centered chapters in the Bible. In fact, God is mentioned by name 32 times in 31 verses. If you add the personal pronouns, that climbs to 43. So the Lord wants to, to bring his son, his, his person, the Holy Spirit certainly wants you to be brought before the Lord quickly, and that is about where he'd like you to stay for the next 66 books, because his purpose is simple. He wants you to know Jesus, his first coming, and his second. All right, verse 1 says this, In the beginning, God. I read a story a while back of a new newspaper reporter. He, it was his first job, and the, the assignment editor said, sent him to a social event, and he said, I'd like you to report on what you see. And he came back with 12 pages of single-spaced type. And the editor said, shorten it. He came back with eight, and then with five. Eventually, he was able to whittle them down to one page, and the editor said, look, young man, maybe you have forgotten that God himself recorded the work of his creation in 10 words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning. Now, you can't really go back any further than in the beginning, but the question is, when was that? When was the beginning? The Bible does not give us a definitive answer, though we have here a time reference. Beginning is a time reference. It isn't eternity past. It's just there's a starting point, if you will. We know God existed before this took place. We know that he had you and I in his heart before all of this took place. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, that he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. God had you in mind well before Genesis 1-1. But in the beginning, as far as the earth and creation and all that we understand began, that's what this reference is made to. There are several theories, and uh, some more plausible than others, that have been postulated about over the centuries to try to reconcile the age of the earth, if you will, and then the accounts of creation with geology and, geology and, and scientific discovery. Most evangelical Christians uh, and, and Christian scientists take a literal view of creation that require you to believe in a young earth, six to maybe 10,000 years max. They challenge, obviously, the evolutionists who require billions of years to support their model. Uh, they also ignore any kind of cataclysmic events that would indeed speed that up on the, on the earth, if you will. Um, evolutionists believe, in fact, look today, what the average evolutionists believe the world is 12 to 18 billion years old. And I just thought, all right, you believe 12, you believe 18, you, you're off by 6 billion years. 
you're a trustworthy guy, you know. You're off 100% here. Others believe that there is room for an old earth. We'll, we'll look at this gap theory in just a moment. Um, but whatever side you choose, um, you will find people very zealous of their position. Um, my personal belief is that the earth is young and that the cataclysmic things that have happened to it certainly account for everything that the Bible teaches, that I don't need to somehow manipulate it or make it work for me. Um, but I would say to you, if you have a problem with that, that's okay. Then I would go back to Job chapter uh, 38, verse 1 through 7, where the Lord spoke to Job in the whirlwind, and he said, Who is this that darkens my counsel, but darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Prepare yourself. I'm going to ask you some questions. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? And I went, all right. <laughs> I guess I don't know, because I wasn't there. And then the Lord went on and he said to him, tell me if you have any understanding how I took the measurement. Surely you know how I stretched the line and I laid the foundations and put in this corner. So where were you, Job? And Job went, okay, I don't know everything. So the truth is that experts um, are speculative at best. And like I said, everybody has their own personal opinion. I'll be happy to give you mine and the reasons for it. But I know this, in the beginning, God created. It says so right here. And the word created is the Hebrew word bara. And the word bara means to create out of nothing. Now, there's another Greek uh, Hebrew word for create. It's the word asa, and it means to, to formulate by gathering together materials that already exist. It means to assemble. But this word means to make out of nothing, to actually create them out of things that you don't see and cannot see. That I know, because the Bible tells me so. Some folks, however, can't say loudly, in the beginning, God made out of nothing the heavens and the earth. And if you're unwilling or unable to say that, you then eliminate God from your worldview. If God didn't create the heavens and the earth, then you are free to turn to theories like evolution, you know, in the beginning, there were gases and space, and, and a stage was set for a really big bang. As long as you don't say things like, well, where did the space and this gas come from? Then you upset them. Logic alone would demand that there has to be an uncaused first cause. There has to be something that began, and creation demands a creator. Something cannot come from nothing. Nothing ever has except that which the Bible says God spoke into existence. I think that there's a great logic to that as a Christian. We certainly believe in design in our daily life. If, if you see a beautiful painting, I don't think any of you say, I wonder who kicked that around in the dirt and that came out one day. No, you immediately think artist and talent and work and experience and an eye for those kind of things. If you say a, a complex watch, that didn't just happen. Somebody worked on it for a long time. If you see a skyscraper, you say, oh, I wonder who designed this? Because that's the logical response. Evolution presumes that everything moves upward. Everything gets better. Everything improves. That which is complex, you know, has gotten even more complex. But in reality, everything in our life devolves. Go look at yourself in the mirror. 
you don't look as good as you used to. Unless you're 17 or 18 years old and you're just hitting your prime, but that hill's pretty quick downhill, and boy, it gets faster as you go. Look at the paint on your house. Look at the fabric of your favorite shirt or the shoes that you're wearing. They are not improving. They are wearing away, wearing down. So why do we eliminate God? Well, the answer is in Romans chapter 1, where we studied it just a while ago, that, that you know, if, 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 the, if, if God has revealed himself by his Spirit and in creation, then we are placed in a position where if I acknowledge the obvious fact, there is a God who has made all things, then this impersonal world, which I can ignore, now has attached to it a God, a personal God, to whom I now have to become accountable. Because if he made everything, now I've got to find out what he wants. And if he's in charge of everything, I'm, I'm responsible to respond to him. But if I can get God out of the equation, I can be an evolutionist and live my life the way I want without kind of any responsibility. To them, a bigger bang is better, far more impersonal. It leaves me unaccountable to, or accountable to no one. But in the beginning, God created. If you can accept and believe verse 1, it will open your Bible, and everything else from here is downhill. You won't have any more problems with the Bible if you can just come to the understanding there is a God who made everything that you see, and he spoke it uh, with his word, and he made it out of nothing that existed. When you get into the scriptures then, and you begin to read uh, Jonah and the great big fish, the axe head of Elisha's that floated, Jesus walking on the water, resurrection from the dead, small potatoes compared to this. He spoke the world into existence. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is where the trouble sets for many who view evolution as a fact that you can't debate and that only those foolish, fundamentalist Bible believers would think otherwise. By the way, I'm guilty. Most folks speak about evolution as it is fact. It is embraced, unfortunately, by the educated. If you're educated, you'll believe in it. If you're some dumb person, you won't. It is almost a place of pride, if you will. But it is a highly speculative hypothesis without any direct kind of factual support. Back in 1859, when Darwin wrote his Origin of the Species, or his Descent of Man. I don't know if you have had to read that in college. If you hadn't, I wouldn't recommend it to you. You know, he admitted that the one glaring hole in his theory was the gap in the fossil records and with the lack of any transitional life form and that the paleontology did not support his postulations. That was his writing. He wrote that himself. Now, he did write at the end of the book, I believe over time those records will be found and I'll be vindicated. In actuality, 163 years have passed, a quarter million fossils have been found, and none of them have helped him in his determination, his theory, and, and there's no transitional forms, and though there are plenty of fossils everywhere, they are not helpful to him. He defined evolution as the fortuitous circumstance, occurrences of accidental circumstances that they were behind them all. It just happened. I choose to believe God. 
that he's the one who made it all. He is the creator behind it all. You want to build a building? Should have seen what it took to build just what we did here. And the, and the money you have to pay, pay, pay people, if it would just happen, we could have just waited. But it didn't just happen. In fact, it didn't just happen when we had people working on it. it seemed to take forever. A house needs a designer and a builder. So how much more does your eye or your brain or your heart? It's not randomness of billions of years. It is God working over six days. Something you could have done in six seconds, I guess, if you wanted to. To think otherwise is not science, it is not logical, it is not common sense, and it is not true. Okay, I feel better now. And how come many intelligent people believe in it? Because most intelligent people believe in it. But it puts you at odds with the world. A couple of examples maybe that you haven't heard before or haven't thought of. You know, when we went to the moon for the first time, when Armstrong and Alden um, took the you know, Eagle, the lunar landing module, to the seat of tranquility. It was July, I think, 21st, 1969. And because you know, this was the first ever landing on the moon, scientists were worried because believing the Earth at that time was six billion years, they're catching up with themselves now, and that the moon had no atmosphere and would constantly have been battered by meteorites leaving debris and, and dust upon the moon, they, they built the the, the landing, the, 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 eagle, uh, the eagle module, to anticipate 17 to 35 feet of dust in, in the fear that, oh man, when we land, you know, there's going to be a dust storm that is going to be second to none. When they landed, it was less than an inch, an inch thick. And they don't know what to explain it, but, <laughs> you know, they, oh, they had explanation. But, you know, when you're, when you're swimming backwards, you're going to run into something. It was Dr. Barnes at the University of El Paso who, for, for years in America, was the leading scientist studying electromagnetic bands around the Earth. In fact, being Dutch, there was the, 150 years ago, the, the first Dutch, Dutch scientist began to measure electromagnetic levels and begin to write them down and to see whether the, the, the fields of those electromagnetic forces decayed over time. It is important because electromagnetic bands around the Earth protect the Earth from cosmic rays, gamma rays, neutrinos, the stuff that, that makes you age. You know, your cells mutate as a result. In fact, if, if, under perfect conditions, if you could shield milk with the right kind of magnetic bands, you could let it sit on your table for three months without refrigeration. But because of that exposure, we obviously can't do that. We will later learn in the book of Genesis of the water envelope that the Lord had placed around the earth that stayed there until the time of the flood and what it allowed people to do, including living to an average age of 910 years old. But with these electromagnetic fields, we, we also had ozone laters. You, you, you've probably heard about those. They keep out UV light. It, UV light, you know, causes the things to decelerate. We have aerosols and fluorocarbons and, and atomic testing. I think uh, I read today that skin cancer rates in, a, in the world are at an epidemic le level in, in the last five years as we're losing some of that protection. Well, this Dr. Barnes from the University of El Paso said that the constant rate of decay 
uh, in the field, uh, or if he was to reverse that constant decay and go back in time 25,000 years, he said that the magnetism of the Earth would have been so strong that the Earth's surface temperature would have been 240 degrees. If we, because we can measure this decay, and it's a, rap, it's a constant rate. He said if we went back 100,000 years, uh, the, the, the electromagnetic band would have been so strong that the Earth would have melted. <laughs> so then the evolutionist said this, well, the explanation for that is it uncharges itself and then recharges itself from time to time. To which, you know, normal people said, how does it do that? And they go, well, we don't know everything. We just know that's what it does. Dar Darwin, <laughs> man evolved through fortuitous occurrences of accidental circumstances, moving upward from the formation of one simple cell. Well, if Darwin was alive today and looked through an electronic microscope and with the discovery of DNA, he'd see that the, the cell was anything but simple. In fact, the cell is probably the most complex structure in the universe. Two years ago, we were in Oregon going through some caves, and the tour guide, whoever this young kid was, said, pointed to these stalactites, these calcium deposits that kind of look like icicles hanging from the roof, and uh, then the stalagmites, the ones that, you know, on the ground because of the dripping. And he said, you know, this cave, because of these, we have proven that this cave is five million years old. And we thought, where did he read this exactly? You know? In 19, uh, no, it, it has, it's only been about eight years ago that they found a five-foot stalactite under the Washington Monument. It was built in 1924. I guess it should be a lot older. It's kind of like Pop Goes the Weasel, the king is naked, you know? You just, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's, that's better, isn't it? When Peter wrote his second letter, he, he, he wrote there in chapter um, 2, beginning in verse 3, um, where is the promise of his coming? Since our fathers have fallen asleep, all things continue as they are from the beginning of creation, but in this they are willingly ignorant, that the word of God, the heavens were made of old, and the earth standing out of the water in the water was made by gods. But Peter went on to say <laughs> that people have decided that they um, don't want to believe what, what God has said. So they are willfully ignorant. Man wants to start with man and work up. God says, let me reach down to you. You can't make it here with your, with your own capabilities. Better you start with the Lord and work it out from there. It's the same with, with Scripture. You know, the Scripture tells us that human Language was used human, for human ears to hear, written by human hands. But in the beginning, like Peter says, no prophecy was given by the will of man. Men wrote as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, because in the beginning, God spoke, not man. Flies to salvation. In the beginning, sin came and death, but the maker wasn't surprised. In, in the beginning, God sent his son. He, it says, indeed, he was foreordained before the foundation of the word to be manifest in these last times to you. God had a plan in the beginning to save even those that he had just made. Same thing with a new birth. You know, your soul is convicted. You turn in, in repentance to the Lord. He saves you. 
you begin to serve the Lord, and, and you realize, hey, I belong to Christ. But then you read in Ephesians that I was chosen in him before the foundations of the world. In the beginning, God has always been the first to move. Tonight, to, to be strong in the Lord, get by verse 1. You might remember that, uh, maybe you do, from the book of Acts chapter 4, when the early church uh, was accosted for preaching, and they, they had just really gotten started. And they were threatened with, with arrest. They were beaten, some of them, for preaching. They were told never to preach again in the name of Jesus. And then you read in, in Acts 4 that the church got together and they began to pray. Didn't know what to do. You know, lots of pressure. And it says, when they heard these things, they raised up their voices to God with one accord, and they said this, Lord, you are God. You have made the heavens and the earth and everything that's in them. They went right back to verse 1. God, we know who you are. You're more powerful than our enemies, more powerful than their threats. Psalm 121, I think it's verse 2, David said out loud to the Lord, my help comes from the Lord, comma, who made the heavens and the earth. It's important you get this verse in your heart because you serve a big God, a powerful God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The, the earth was out form and void. Tuho, buho. <laughs> Two Hebrew words that say about the same thing. It was empty. There was a nothingness, an unformedness, a vacancy. Now, for many Christians who don't want to believe in a literal translation of the days of creation, which I, I think when we go forward, I'll be able to convince you otherwise. They have developed over the years this thing called a gap theory, where they, they say the word was can be translated became, because it is used that way from time to time. And, and, and in, so they say, well, it became void. And after all, Isaiah chapter 45, verse 18 says, the Lord didn't make the earth in vain, tohu. He made it to be inhabited, which I don't think adds to the argument at all. Um, additionally, promote, promote proponents, I should say, of the gap theory say that the angels that fell with Satan, Ezekiel 28, that since that occurred before the uh, creation of man, that the first Eden might very well have been on the earth and been corrupted, and God then recreated what was ruined. All that to say, if that's true, then you can put 100 billion years between chapter 1 and 2, and we wouldn't know anything about it. The other thing, of course, is that verse 2 speaks not of chaos, but simply disorder. It just says it's unformed. And I think if that's the case, then verse 2 simply gives you a fuller insight into the statement of verse 1. I, I tr truly believe from all that God has given us that the earth is, is a young earth, and that is why God gives the account of it here. Laying all of that aside, because I don't want to ignore the things you're going to hear elsewhere anyway, uh, most of chapter 1 is devoted to God's activity in six creative days, and it is obvious that this is the creation God wants you to know about. It is the story of the Lord preparing the earth to be the dwelling place for the human race, his prized creation, his joy, so that we might glorify him. We were his, 
his cherished and loved creation. Well, that's all the introduction we have until we then begin in verse 3 these words. And then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and the evening and the morning were the first day. Now, verse 3 is very forceful in Hebrew. It literally reads, light be, light was. It's, it's one of those immediate, you know, one word from the Lord's mouth and it happened. God's word is not just um, legislative, I, I guess is the way you'd put it. It is ex ex executive as well. It, it causes things to take place. When, when Jesus said there in Mark 4, peace to be still to the storm at sea, it stopped. When he said to a lifeless, dead, decomposing body of, uh, of Lazarus, arise, then it arose. When he said to the leper there in Luke chapter 5, be cleaned, he was clean. It, one word from the Lord is all you need, isn't it? It's his powerful word. This is God, by the way's first recorded words in the Bible. Ten times in this chapter you will read, God said, or let there be, or let, or let be. They're, they're, they're sometimes called the Ten Commandments of creation, but because God spoke the world into existence. All things were made by him. Without him was nothing made that was made. Psalm 33, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and the host in them by the breath of his mouth. He spoke, it was done. He commanded, it stood fast. I like serving this God. You're not going to argue with him. He's going to declare and, and we're going to rejoice. Now, it is interesting that the sun and the moon were not created until day four, down in verse 16 to 19, where we're not going tonight. But already there is a period of light and darkness that is cyclical, denoting a day period. The earth is, is rotating on its axis. Where does the light come from? We are not told. I could give you the argument that the Lord is light and that it was his light during this time that shines, but I cannot justify that to you other than to say the Bible, the Bible says the Lord calls himself light. But notice it is the evening and the morning is the first day. The, the word day, by the way, has three uses in, in the Bible. It, it, sometimes it is used as a portion of a 24-hour period in which it is light as distinguished from the night, like we would usually use it. Sometimes the, the word day is a protracted length of time, especially in prophecy, like the day of the Lord, if you will. And thirdly, it is used specifically to speak of one 24-hour period, um, and especially when the word day is preceded by a numerical adjective. In other words, if there's a number in front, an adjective before the word day, it is always a reference to a single 24-hour day. So first day, second day, those are always the same, and they're always defined in the same manner. I do not believe in theistic evolution, which is also popular these days. And it is kind of like trying to make everybody happy, where it says, well, you know, a day could be millions of years long. Well, it could be, but that's not the way the word day is used by the Bible. And the only interpreter we can use for the Bible, ultimately, is the Bible. And what does God have to say? So the Bible says God made the, all that we know in six 24-hour periods, and he rested on the seventh day. That's all I know. 
and that's good enough for me. And I want you to notice that it started in the evening, so that even today, if you go to Israel, their days are marked like that. The Sabbath for Saturday begins on Friday evening at twilight, and depending on the time that's registered, sometime in the late afternoon on a Friday. So this was the first day. There was light, there was a night, there was a day. The Lord saw it, that it was good. Spirit was hovering over the, the formless, if you will, and God then began to work. Verse 6, the second day of creation, then God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters and let it divide the water from the water. And so God made the firmament and divide the water which were over under the firmament from the water which were above the firmament and it was so, and so God called the firmament heaven. And again, the evening and the morning were the second day. The word firmament, rakia in, in Hebrew, means vault. The creation of the atmosphere is taken care of here in the second day. God originally, as we will learn, placed a large volume of water in the atmosphere. The initial separation is made here between the waters suspended above and the waters held beneath, if you will, the surface of the earth. So God made the distinction between the two. The results was this water canopy. Now you need to remember that because it is going to be in place until the flood when that canopy both above and underneath is, is by the Lord let go, which causes the earth to flood for almost a year over the tops of the highest mountains upon the earth and becomes an explanation for what so often we find in, 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 in our studies of fossils and all. But, but needless to say, um, that water canopy before um, the flood protected the body. When man is created, it, it's, there's a reason you live to be 900. And the reason is you have this water canopy. You'd have a temperate climate worldwide no polar ice caps, no violent storms, no hurricanes, no cold winds, no hot winds converging. It'd be, the whole planet would be Hawaii. It just kind of would be humid and of all kind of the same temperature. It will explain when we get to it how they have found 50 foot long asparagus shoots buried in the North Pole in 200 feet of ice. The mammoths found encased in ice in Siberia with vegetation still in their stomachs. It just explains everything, if you will. The earth used to be a, a kinder place, right? This, this water envelope would filter out all of the radiation. And like I said, after the flood, by the way, the Lord will say in chapter 6, your days are going to be 120 years. And that really became the average age after the flood. And by the time you get to David's time, 1000 B.C., you will hear David in chapter 90 of Psalms saying, if you live to be 70 or by reason of strength 80, you've lived a long time. And, and you find this, this decrease of life as you know the, the earth kind of winds itself down, if you will, through man's cause and, 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 and other things. But in, in, in the bottom line is um, this, this protection is gone from us and today, even today, the average 70 to 80 still is about the same as it was in 1000 BC. So things haven't changed very much. Notice that God calls the firmament heaven. There are three heavens in the Bible, and, and, and they are used 
and they're, they're, I shouldn't say they're, they are, um, what's the word I'm using for? They are identified by the way that the words are used or that that word is used, defined, if you will, by how it is used. Um, there, is a, there is a heaven, um, the atmosphere, where the birds fly, that's called the heavens. There is outer space, where the planets and the stars uh, are found. And then there's heaven where God dwells, the third heaven, as Paul called it in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. It does seem like this is the atmosphere the Lord is talking about, not outer space yet, but just that, that, that envelope of water around the earth. So on the second day, evening to morning, God made the firmament, the vault, the atmosphere. Day three, verse 10, then God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so, and God called the dry land the earth and he gathered together the waters he called seas and God saw that it was good. The appearance of land and seas, and by the way, the word seas in the Bible is used for, for oceans, for, for rivers, for, for lakes. They are used interchangeably most of the time. Um, on day three of creation, twice a day, the tides have, you know, following the sovereignty of God's oversight, were influenced by the Lord without a moon being present yet. Now, we know that the tides are now controlled by the moon and its, and its influence, but here on day three, God was in charge. And I love, I love reading, and God saw that it was good. It's kind of like he gave himself a high five. Nice job. This is pretty good, right? Also on day three, verse 11, then God said, let the earth bring forth grass and the herbs that yields seed and the fruit trees that yield seed according to its sign, kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth, and it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, that herbs that yields seed according to its kind, the fruit that yields, uh, the trees that yield fruit with its seed in itself according to its kind. And again, God saw that it was good, and so the evening and the morning was the third day. So on day three, you get land, you get the seas, you also get the development of life on the planet, which until now was dead. At least there was no life on it, right? You get grasp and grasp, or in grass too, and uh, herb seed, uh, yielding seed and fruit trees. And notice uh, they all appeared in one day. They didn't just show up kind of fragile in a lonely form. They, they appeared with, with uh, variety and what is called prodigality, which is, just means it's just, there's a lot of it. It all came at once in, in, I think, numbers that would probably stagger our imagination. But notice the words here on day three that are mentioned a lot, and, and part of them is according to its kind. Now, with all of the arguments among the scientific community, no one has ever been able to argue the fact that <laughs> things follow after their kind. Men for years had planted billions of grains of wheat and never has a corn stalk appeared. It just grows what is planted. You can have variations in species, look at dogs, if you will, or, or apples, <laughs> but there are no cross species. There are micro movements, but never vertical movements, if you will, 
in, in species because God made them to be after their kind. So every seed after its kind has contained a self kind of contained code that will able, is able to produce itself. Think about the genius of God. <laughs> it just amazes me that God made seeds that can produce themselves. God's designed for, for seeds, seed propagation. Years ago, if you've been a believer for a while, Moody Films for a long time put out these science films. I thought they were wonderful. In fact, they were in Whittier for a long time uh, up uh, on the other side of town. And uh, they would give you these beautiful insights into how these kind of things work. For example, you know, pine cones, uh, if seeds fell out of a pine cone straight down to the ground, they would never survive because mother pine tree, you know, takes a lot of nutrients out of the ground, requires an awful lot of feeding to continue to grow. There isn't enough light and stuff. And so God makes this seed, you know, when it cracks out of the, 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 the mother tree, it has wings on it and it begins to spin. Maybe you've seen them, and they'll carry them, you know, miles, no, not miles, if it's not windy, but at least feet away from the, the mother tree itself, and they have a chance to survive. So when the, when the pine cry, uh, cone cracks and, and breaks open, the seed begins to fall and has little winglets, and it spins kind of like a helicopter motor, and it gets away to a suitable place to grow, and you go, Lord, that's, that's pretty inventive. That didn't just happen. That was designed, another marvelous accident. I wonder how long it took the, palm, uh, the pine tree to come up with that idea. There are some seeds that maybe you know that when the pod explodes and when it dries, it shoots kind of seeds in, in, with great force in all kinds of directions. There, there are others that have little hooks on them that you know, when they hit the ground, they hook to animal skins or, or, or fur or maybe under your socks. And you walk them to another place, and they, or begin to irritate it, and you throw it away, and they propagate them. Some have this quick drying glue, and they just stick to whatever they run into, and, and your shoe maybe, and some place it'll fall off. Some have meat around them, so the bear will eat the berries, and later on he'll pass it along, and wherever he passes along, that's exactly where it is propagated. So the way God designed seeds to propagate is marvelous, right? What a, what a cool day three. Must have had fun watching, you know? Even uh, ever have your neighbor's dandelions from your, their yard grow into your nicer yard, you know? How did it get here? Well, a wind, maybe the guy that mows your lawn, if it's not you, you know, is bringing a lawnmower over with that junk on it, and you don't know. The coconut seed is cool. We were just in Hawaii for this last week. You know, it, the coconut conquered the South Pacific. It is waterproof in its husk. It surrounds itself, even a hurricane. All it can do is throw it in the water and just kind of bob around till it lands somewhere, you know. Some tide takes it to a beach, gets covered with sand. It holds enough water in itself to sustain itself until it can develop a root system and begin to grow. This is not normal. This is genius. God I know did that. God that loves me did that. God that saved you did that. What a testimony to the work and to the power and to the wisdom of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. The earth shows forth his handiwork. God can speak to you. And people sometimes say, oh, you know, we were in Hawaii with all the nice sunsets and stuff. And someone says, oh, I just love it. I'm thinking, yeah, the Lord did that. I should tell you about the Lord who did that. The leaves that turn, you know, rays of sun into energy 
photosynthesis. God's just process. The way that salt water can be carried in clouds upon the land, and now you get fresh water. We flew from Hawaii late Monday night, 2,500 miles over, just clouds. I'm thinking, this is only the Lord does this kind of stuff. Just the coolest. Creator of all things. God saw that it was good. I think so. Second time on the day three, he says, high five. And then it says, day three is complete. God saw that it was good, and so can you and I. God does things well. And I think if you can begin to wrap your hand around in the beginning, the God I know made everything I can see. And I don't understand it all, but I'm amazed at what he's done. I don't know why he didn't let me have hair till I died. I don't get it. <laughs> I'm upset by it. I have a folder, ask God questions, that's in it. I have a picture of me when I had hair. Long day. In fact, when Gerard started, you had long hair too, didn't you? Look at you now. It's getting worse, man, isn't it? Oh my gosh. Some of you all know exactly what I'm talking about. You read that story about, you know, the, the kids coming to mock the prophet and the bears coming out of the woods. I like that story. Called him Baldy. That didn't work too well. Well, next week we will continue. I think we'll be able to get to the end of the creation um, story next week. I love how the Lord just sees everything that's good and good and then some more good. But if you get down towards the very end, um, I think it's verse 31, the Lord in finally giving himself one big high five said, and the Lord saw that all he had made and he said, this is very good. This is very good. And then he turned around and looked at Adam, well, that's not good. <laughs> good, 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 very good, not so good. Why is that? Well, we'll figure that out next week. Father, thank you this evening for your word to us. So excited to get into this favorite book of mine. This book that just tells us all about what you've done. That gives us answers to things that, that certainly this world and its scientists, its smartest people, can't explain have worked so hard at, at trying to convince us that they know when they don't. And yet we know so much more. The, the weakest and the, and the most simple saints so much smarter, so much wiser than the wise and the wisdom of this world. So good to have your word on it. So good to see science again and again support what you've said. And so, Lord, may we begin to just develop a confidence in you. A, a rest that only comes when we're convinced that you're the Lord who's in charge. You've made everything that we see. You, you've done it all. You, you spoke the world into existence. One word from you, and our situation can change. Our, our health can be touched. Our mind can be straightened. Our financial problems can be fixed. One word from you, and doors can be opened, and doors can be shut, and our needs will be met. One word from you. Because in the beginning, God, you spoke, and everything that we know and see was created. Not in some small state, but fully grown, ready to bear fruit. Just as you spoke to our hearts that day when we went to you with our sin and asked for your forgiveness and you saved us. One word from you, and I went from death to life. Forgiveness, the name in the book of life and an assurance that you would finish what you began. Thank you, Lord, that we don't serve a God who's unable 
And even though we look around and we see almost like we're losing ground here to the world. So good to know, God, that you provide for your people. You open doors that you alone can keep open. And you answer the cries of your saints. And that you meet every need. And that you know what we need before we ask. Because in the beginning, God, you created the heavens and the earth. And you spoke this world into existence. And you're the Lord of all. And it is a testimony to all of us, God, of who we serve. If tonight you don't know this God, this God who gave us this Bible with only really two purposes, he wants you to to follow it through to find his son. See him in his first coming to die for your sins and see him in the promise of his return to rule and reign forevermore. Then you can know him tonight. Paul said to those who are not believing in God, he's near you even in your mouth. All you need to do is cry out to him. Raise up your voice. Lord, help me, creator of all. You made me. Now, Lord, save me. Wash me. Make me your own. Thank you for your son. One word out of your mouth, and God's word will be, you are my child. No one will be able to snatch you out of my hand. You're the joy of my inheritance amongst the saints. And for the joy set before him, the Bible says Jesus endured the cross and despised the shame, and then sat down at the right hand of the Father. You're the joy set before him, that you would be saved, that you would live to serve him and one day live forever with him. And tonight you can invite him into your heart and he'll come to be your Savior and Lord. We have some pastors that will be up front after the service. Look, if God has been speaking to you, don't leave until you, you, you solve this issue between you and him. And you're able to include Jesus in your hope for the future because he's the only one that can save. If you're online, there's a, there's a description box at the bottom where you're watching with a link that will take you to a page that talks about receiving the Lord into your life and the scriptures that will explain to you what God's promised to do and a phone number to call tomorrow if you're interested in asking any questions. But don't let this time pass you by. Because like we said this evening, God wrote the Bible with an agenda. He wants you to meet his son so you can have eternal life. Well, thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing and rating our podcast. You can visit us on the web at MorningstarCC.org and on our YouTube channel at MorningstarCC. Again, that's at MorningstarCC. If you'd like to support this podcast, please look us up at Patreon.com slash MorningstarCC. Again, that's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash MorningstarCC.